Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're finishing off the reading we started last week, Authoritarian Leftists. I'll reiterate the main two notes I had last week, which is just that this is written from the point of view of a black person. I am not a person of color of any kind, but did not opt to edit the text because that just wouldn't have made as much sense. And also there is occasional use of the word American, which is spelled with three Ks and is a slang about the white supremacy of the United States of America. I do my best to pronounce it with a kind of extra syllable or extra kind of pause. So that's what that is if you're hearing it and not quite following what I'm trying to say. Also, briefly, there's a point in this part of the reading where the author refers to Lorenzo Combo and Irvin by name in the third person, even though I believe he is the author, everything I've seen indicates he is, and I've seen nothing to the contrary, so I'm not quite sure why that's happening. It's just a funny little bit. If, in fact, I have somehow gotten the wrong author for this piece, please do let me know. But in the absence of other evidence, I am still saying he wrote it. There will be a small bit of discussion at the end, just a few brief notes I don't have a ton to weigh in on for this short reading. So let's finish off this reading. Section 3. Zero support of non-white left factions by the white left. I've always found this particularly disturbing. You all want our help, but do not want to help us. You want to march shoulder to shoulder with us against the government and its supporters, but do not want us to have a solid political or material foundation of our own, to not only win the fight against the white supremacist state, but to also rebuild our communities on our own behalf in our likenesses. Let white Marxists provide unconditional, no strings attached, material support for non-white factions whose ideology runs parallel to theirs, and let white anarchist factions provide unconditional, again, no strings attached, material support for factions and communities of color who have parallel ideologies and goals. Obviously, the one string that can never be avoided is that of harsh economic reality. If you don't have the funds, you can't do it. That's fair and logical, but if you're paying these exorbitant amounts for projects and events that amount to little more than ideological masturbation and organizational cultism, while we do practical work out of pocket or on a tiny budget amongst our own, it seems to me that a healthy dose of criticism or self-criticism and reassessment of priorities is in order on the part of you professional revolutionaries of the white left. If the white left vanguards are unwilling to materially support practical work by non-white revolutionary factions, then you have no business showing your faces in our neighborhoods. If you Marxist missionaries insist on coming into our neighborhoods preaching the gospel of Marx, Lenin, Mao, etc., the least you could do is pay us for your trouble. You certainly haven't offered us much else that's useful. To their credit, the white anarchists and anti-authoritarian leftists have been generally supportive of the black struggle by comparison, black autonomy and related projects in particular. Matter of fact, back in October of 1994, in an act of mutual aid and solidarity, the Philadelphia branch of the Industrial Workers of the World IWW, printed the very first issue of Black Autonomy, 1,000 copies, for free. 
One of their members actually got a little upset when I asked how much we owed them for the print job. In return, and in line with our class interests, we allied ourselves with the Philly branch and others in a struggle within the IWW against the more conservative armchair revolutionary slash historical society elements within its national administrative body. Former political prisoner, SNCC member, Black Panther, and Black autonomist, anarchist, Lorenzo Camboa Irvin, credits the hard work of anarchist groups in Europe and non-vanguardist Marxist and anarchist factions in the US for assisting him in a successful campaign for early release from prison after 13 years of incarceration. In no way do we expect you or anyone else to bankroll us. What I am offering is one suggestion to those of you who sincerely want to help, and a challenge to those who in fact seek to play God with our lives while spouting empty, meaningless rhetoric about freedom, justice, class struggle, and solidarity. To these people I ask, do you have ideas or do ideas have you? Actually, a better question might be, do you think at all? Section 4. Bourgeois Pseudo-Analysis of Race and Class It only makes sense that the white left's analysis of race and class in America would be so erroneous when you're so quick to jump up and pass judgement on everyone else about this or that, but deathly afraid of real self-criticism at the individual or collective level, opting instead to use tools of self-criticism as a means to reaffirm old, tired ideas that were barely thought out to begin with, or by dodging real self-criticism altogether by dogmatically accusing your critics of red-baiting. Clearly, it is you who red-bait yourselves, as the old saying goes. Those who live in glass houses should not throw stones. Action talks, bullshit walks. Some of the more backward sections of the white left still push that old, tired line. Gay, straight, black, white, same struggle, same fight. Nothing can be further from the truth. Sure, we are all faced with the same main enemy, the racist authoritarian state and its supporters. But unlike white males, straight or gay, and with some minor parallels to the experiences of white women, our oppression begins at birth. This is a commonality that we share with native people, Hispanics, Pacific Islanders, and Asians. As we grow up, we go from being cute in the eyes of larger society to being considered dangerous by the time we're teenagers. As this point is driven home to us day in and day out in various social settings and circumstances, some of us decide, in frustration, to give the white folks what they want to believe. We become predatory. This dynamic is played out in ghettos, barrios, Chinatowns, and reservations across the country. Even those of us who choose not to engage in criminal activity or aren't forced into it have to live under the stigma. In addition, we as individuals are still viewed as objects and our community as a monolith. We then enter the workforce, that is, if there are any jobs available. It is there that we learn that our people and other non-whites are last hired, first fired that our white co-workers are generally afraid of us or view us as competition, and that management is watching us even more closely than other workers, while at the same time fueling petty squabbles and competition between us and other non-white workers. 
those of us who are fortunate enough to land a union job soon find out that the unions are soft on racism in the workplace. This only makes sense as we learn later on that unions in the US are running dogs of capitalism and apologists for the management, despite their militant rhetoric. Most unionized workers are white, reflective of the majority of unionized labor in the US, who constitute a mere 13% of the total labor force. This is why it is silly for the white left to prattle on and on about the labor movement and about how so many of our people are joining unions. That's no consolation to us when black unemployment hovers at 35% nationally. Many of those brothers and sisters living in places where permanent unemployment is the rule rather than the exception. And many more who find work at non-union, dead-end, service industry jobs. One out of three of our people is caught up somewhere within the US criminal justice system. In jail, in prison, on parole, on work release, awaiting trial, etc. as a direct result. In addition, many white workers are supportive of racist Republican politicians, such as presidential candidate Pat Buchanan, who promises to protect their jobs at the expense of non-white workers and immigrants. What is the white left or the union movement doing about all of that? It shouldn't be surprising that the white left still preaches a largely economist viewpoint when it comes to workers generally, and workers of color in particular. This view is further evidence of not only your own deviation from Marx, but also from Lenin by your own varied, yet similar, definitions. Lenin recognized why the majority of Russian revolutionaries of his time put forward an economist position. Quote, In Russia, the yoke of autocracy appears at first glance to obliterate all distinction between the social democrats' organization and workers' association, since all workers' associations and all study circles are prohibited, and since the principal manifestation and weapon of the workers' economic struggle, the strike, is regarded as a criminal and sometimes even as a political offense. End quote. In this country, the distinction between the trade unions and revolutionary organizations is abundantly clear. Even if some groups like the Socialist Workers Party, SWP, still fail to make the distinction themselves. And the primary contradiction within the working class is that of racial stratification as a class weapon of the bourgeoisie and capitalists against the working class as a whole. Yet, the white left, along with the rest of the white working class, fails to see its collaborationist role in this process. And this goes right back to what I said earlier in this writing about the need for a serious historical and cultural critique amongst all white people, and not just the settler nation's left-wing factions that goes beyond superficial culture appropriations or lofty dogmatic proclamations of how committed you and your party is to racial equality. To even consider oneself white or to call oneself white is an argument for race and class oppression. Look at the history of the US and see who first erected these terms, white and black, and why they were created in the first place. I remember last summer, around the 4th of July, I had a member of the local SWP tried to tell me that the American War of Independence was progressive. Progressive for whom? Tell us the truth. 
Who were the primary beneficiaries of the American Revolution? You know the answer. We all do. Only a total unrepentant reactionary would lie to the people, especially on this point. Howard Zinn, in his work, A People's History of the United States, points out how early 20th century historian Charles Beard found that of the 55 men who gathered in Philadelphia in 1787 to draw up the U.S. Constitution, quote, a majority of them were lawyers by profession, that most were men of wealth, in land, in slaves, manufacturing, or shipping, that half of them had money loaned out at interest, and that 40 of the 55 held government bonds, according to records of the U.S. Treasury Department, end quote. Thus, Beard found that most of the makers of the Constitution had some direct economic interest in establishing a strong federal government. The manufacturers needed protective tariffs. The moneylenders wanted to stop the use of paper money to pay off debts. The land speculators wanted protection as they invaded Indian lands. Slave owners needed federal security against slave revolts and runaways. Bondholders wanted a government able to raise money by nationwide taxation to pay off those bonds. Four groups, Beard noted, were not represented in the Constitutional Convention. Slaves, indentured servants, women, men without property. And so the Constitution did not reflect the interests of these groups. End quote. Footnote 1. Come to terms with your white skin privilege and the ideology and attitudes this privilege breeds, and then figure out how to combat that dynamic as part of your fight against the state and its supporters. Your continued backwardness is a sad commentary when we uncover historical evidence which shows that even before the turn of the century, some of your own ancestors within the white working class were beginning to take the first small steps towards a greater understanding of their social role as the white servants of capital. A white shoemaker in 1848 wrote, We are nothing but a standing army that keeps three million of our brethren in bondage. Living under the shade of Bunker Hill Monument, demanding in the name of humanity our right, and withholding those rights from others because their skin is black. Is it any wonder that God, in his righteous anger, has punished us by forcing us to drink the bitter cup of degradation? End quote. Footnote 2. We can even look to the historical evidence of Lenin's time. Prior to the publishing of Lenin's On Imperialism, W.E.B. Dubois wrote an article for the May 1915 edition of the Atlantic Monthly, titled The African Roots of War, in which he vividly describes how both rich and poor whites benefit from the super-exploitation of non-white people. Quote, Yes, the average citizen of England, France, Germany, the United States had a higher standard living than before. But whence comes this new wealth? It comes primarily from the darker nations of the world, Asia and Africa, South and Central America, the West Indies, and the islands of the South Seas. It is no longer simply the merchant prince or the aristocratic monopoly, or even the employing class that is exploiting the world. It is the nation, a new democratic nation composed of united capital and labor. Footnote 4. Yet the self-titled anti-racists of the left continue on with their infantile fixation on the Klan, Nazis, and right-wing militias, groups that they say they are against, but in fact demonstrate a tolerance for in practice. 
standing around chanting empty slogans in front of a line of police separating demonstrators from the Nazis in a peaceful demonstration is contradiction in its purest form. Both the police and the fascists must be mercilessly destroyed. As the Spanish anarchist Buenaventura de Rudy proclaimed back in 1936, Fascism is not to be debated, it is to be smashed. There is no room for compromise or dialogue, except for asking them for a last meal request and choice of execution method before we pass sentence. And even that is arbitrary. True, tactical considerations must be examined. But if we can't get at them then and there, there is no rule that says we can't follow them and hit them when they least expect it except for the rule of the wannabe rulers of the Marxist-Leninist white-left vanguard, who only see the fascists as competition in their struggle to see which set of empire builders will lord over us, the good whites who regulate us to the American left plantation of the glorious workers' state, or the bad whites who will work us as slaves until half-dead, and then laugh as our worn-out carcasses are thrown into ovens, cut up for scientific purposes, or hung from lampposts and trees. You people have yet to show me the qualitative difference between a clan or Nazi-style white supremacist dictatorship and your concept of a dictatorship of the proletariat in the context of this particular country and its notorious history. So far, all I have seen from you is arrogance in coalitions, petty games of political one-upmanship, and ideological-slash-tactical rigidity. Let's pretend for a minute that one of the various wannabe vanguards actually seizes political power. In every one of your programs, from the program of the RCP, USA, to even smaller, lesser-known groups, there is usually a line somewhere in there about your particular party holding the key levers of state power, within a dictatorship of the proletariat. Have any of you actually considered what this sounds like to a community without real power? Does this mean that we as black people are going to have to fight and die a second time under your dictatorship in order to have equal access to employment, housing, schools, colleges, public office, party status, our own personal lives generally? Look at our history. Over 100 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, the 1960s, we were still dying for the right to vote, for the right to protest peacefully, for the right to live in peace and prosperity within the context of white domination and capitalism. Today, after all of that, it is clear that the masses of our people are still largely powerless. We stayed powerless, even as public schools were being desegregated, and most of our elites were being elected to Congress and other positions. The same racist authoritarian state that stripped us of our humanity was now asserting itself as our first line of defense of those hard-won concessions in the form of federal troops and FBI observers who watched as we were beaten, raped, and or killed. Sent to enforce the Civil Rights Act of 1968 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. As we have seen since that time, what the white power structure grants it can and will take away. We can point to recent US Supreme Court decisions around voter redistricting as one part of our evidence. We can also look to the problem of mail and publication censorship in the US prison system, state and federal. 
that has come back to haunt us since the landmark 1960s First Amendment legal challenge to the state of New York that was won by political prisoner and black-slash-Puerto Rican anarchist Martin Sostre. And then there's the attacks on a prisoner's right to sue a prison official, employee, or institution being made by the House and Senate. Give us one good reason to believe that you people will be any different than these previous and current benevolent leaders and political institutions if, by some fluke or miracle, you folks stumble into state power. No guarantees against counter-revolution or revisionism within your revolutionary party-slash-government, you say? There are two. The guns, ammunition, organization, solidarity, political consciousness, and continuous vigilance of the masses of non-white people and the truly sympathetic, conscious, anti-authoritarian few amongst your population. Or a successful grassroots-based revolution that is rooted in anti-authoritarian political ideas that are culturally relevant to each ethnicity of the poor and working-class population in the U.S. Judging by the general attitudes and theories expressed by your members and leadership, we can be rest assured that it is virtually guaranteed that the spirit of Jim Crow can and will flourish within a white-led Marxist-Leninist proletarian dictatorship in the U.S. It's clear to me why you all ramble on and on about the revolutions of China, Russia, Vietnam, Cuba, etc. They provide convenient cover for you all, read Escapism, to avoid a serious examination of the faults in your current analysis, as well as in the historical analysis of the last 30 years of struggle in the US. These are the only conclusions that can be drawn when you all are so obviously hostile to the idea of doing the hard work of confronting your own individual racist and reactionary tendencies. When your own fellow white activists attempted to put together an anti-racism workshop for members of the Seattle Mumia Defense Committee, many of you pledged your support in the form of the usual dogmatic, value, and arguably baseless rhetorical proclamations of solidarity and commitment to racial equality, and then proceeded to not show up. Only the two initial organizers within the SMDC and two coalition members, neither affiliated with any political party, were there. Make no mistake, I have no illusions about white people confronting their own racism but I do support their honest attempts at doing so. Here we have a situation in which an ideological leap amongst the white left in Seattle may have been initiated. Yet, the all-knowing, all-seeing, revolutionary vanguards of the white left were too busy spending that particular weekend picking the Lent out of their belly buttons. Are we saving our belly button Lent for the potential shortages of food that occurred during and shortly after the revolution? is corrupted by the misleadership of your particular rigid, dogmatic, authoritarian party? Section 5. The bottom line is this, self-determination. For most white leftists, this means that we as black people are demanding our own separate nation-state. Some of our revolutionary factions do advocate such a position. Black autonomists, however, reject nation-statism. Regardless of whether or not the black masses opt for a separate homeland on this continent or in Africa, we will be respected as subjects of history, and not as objects that the state, its supporters, or the white left decides what to do with. The answer to the black question is simple. 
It is not a question. We are people. You will deal with us as such, or we will fight you and the rest of the white settler nation, by any and all means necessary. We will not be cowed or dominated by anyone ever again. Too many times in the course of American and world history have our people fought and died for the dream of true freedom, only to have it turn into the nightmare of continued oppression. If the end result of a working class revolution in the United States is the continued domination of non-white people by white revolutionary leaders and a left-wing white supremacist government, then we will make another revolution until any and all perpetrators and supporters of that type of social-political relationship are defeated or dead. Any and all means are completely justifiable in order to prevent the defeat of our revolution and the reintroduction of white supremacy. We will not put up with another 400 plus years of oppression, and I'm sure our native and Hispanic brothers and sisters won't tolerate another 500 plus years of the same old shit. Ultimately, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. That's the main reason I decided to publish this, as yet another humble contribution to the self-education of our people. The second reason is to, hopefully, inspire the white left to re-examine your current practices and beliefs as part of your process of self-education, assuming that you all in fact practice self-education. Reject the traditions of your ancestors and learn from their mistakes, or reject your potential allies in communities of color. The choice is yours. Quote, It is a commentary on the fundamentally racist nature of this society that the concept of group strength for black people must be articulated, not to mention defended. No other group would submit to being led by others. Italians do not run the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B're. Irish do not chair Christopher Columbus societies. Yet when black people call for black-run and all-black organizations, they are immediately classed in a category with the Ku Klux Klan. End quote. Footnote 4 That concludes this week's reading and the full reading of itself. The main thing that I thought was useful in this reading is the kind of overall takeaway that anti-authoritarianism and kind of anarchism as a critique is not only about dictators and fascism, it is about how a communist society could have authoritarian elements that are a problem, even if it is not straight up fascist. The very notion of feeling a need to have authority, feeling a power from having authority, the assumption that there has to be an inherent power structure, and there cannot be a fully even playing field where people are free individually to make their own separate choices, and then collectively as a whole, without it being by a representative body, for say. A small funny thing I found is that part of the reason I read these additional modern texts, even if they're shorter often, is because I want to add to the understanding I would get by just reading texts that are century old. And this very reading makes a point of criticizing people who are on the left who have read Marx and Lenin and Mao and know nothing of the modern times, disregard the differences in America, disregard the way black people have a specific and different struggle than white people. And so this really just kind of confirmed that it is important to read stuff that's more modern and more specific about different viewpoints, different peoples, different struggles. 
One of the other things from finishing the conquest of bread is I still had reservations about what seemed like an assumption that interpersonal issues, prejudices, wouldn't be a problem if there wasn't a kind of state authority or like body enforcing those, which I had reservations about and I felt like was an unanswered question. And I feel like this greeting doesn't answer that question, but instead asks why that would be any better in a communist society that was not anarchist. And ultimately, it's a fair response because the answer is, well, yes, unless you actually tackle racism, you will still have the same problems, but it will be worse because if you have a minority group of people, as in representatives, who are in control of a larger group of people, the general populace, and if any of those people are racist, it is far worse than if the person who lives next to you is racist but has no significant control over your life. And so that is a fair point that, I mean, if the racism is going to exist equally, then anarchy is no worse for that. And ultimately, the actual productive answer is you need to tackle and deal with racism. There's just no going around it. You can't act as if it's just a truth of the world. It is a consequence of our current society. So I hope you enjoyed this reading. I hope it helped you think about anarchism as a kind of modern context and how it can be a critique of the current left and the current kind of state of organizing. If you have questions, comments, corrections, suggestions for readings, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. The show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can find lots of other leftist podcasts there about different media like video games, anime, movies, books. Our intro and actual music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work at soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading. <laughs>